0: Hey everyone! Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia podcast. I'm Sean O'Laughlin.
1: Oh, and I'm Maddie Cassidy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> where, where something's missing?
1: It's usually never the two of us. Yeah, this is fun.
0: It is fun. Um, no, not too much fun. Don't worry, Justin. We still miss you. Justin's not with us today. Uh, he's he's actually attending a conference right now. This is like conference season. We keep having these mm-hmm. episodes where one of us is away at a conference somewhere. Uh, except for me, I'm usually here just sitting in my office. (laughs) Editing podcast. Editing, yeah, just looking at sound waves all day. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We have a special episode today. It's weird because I didn't even get the opportunity to do and.
1: Oh yeah, (laughs) we just made it all crazy
0: today. I'm so thrown off. We have a Career Pathways episode today because everyone loves Career Pathways, including us with some of our favorite episodes to record. And today we're sitting down with Julie... Kuchipadev from SAGE, which is short for Seafood and Gender Equality, and she has a really interesting story to tell us about just kind of how she got to where she is. Uh, Very, very cool background, very cool work that she's doing. She also started a new seafood podcast, we want to welcome her into the fold, embrace her. With open arms into... She's in
1: the crew now. That's
0: right. We welcome her into the world of seafood podcasting. And her new podcast is called The Conk. And we have links to it in the show notes. So make sure you check that out. Subscribe, rate, and review. And... Go along for this ride with her. It's going to be a good one.
1: And while you're rating and reviewing Julie's podcast, make sure that if you're enjoying this episode that you rate and review us on whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on.
0: That's right. Subscribe to Aquademia so you can get every new episode directly downloaded to your device as soon as it's available. And if you want to contact us, you can email us, podcast at globalseafood.org you can find us on twitter at aquademiapod or you can go to globalseafood.org click on Aquademia Podcast right up at the top and use the contact form
1: we'd love to hear your episode suggestions comments guest requests all that kind of stuff
0: that's right so without further ado i hope you enjoy this conversation we had with julie and we will talk to you at the end So we're sitting down today with Julie Kuchipada, and I finally said her name right, from uh, Seafood and Gender Equality, also known as SAGE for short, and she is here to talk about her career pathways. How's it going, Julie?
2: Great. How are you guys? I'm really excited to be here.
1: We're great. We are so excited to have you on the show with us today.
0: Yeah, and we're really also very excited to talk about your new podcast because if anyone who's a regular listener, they know that we love to talk with other seafood podcasters because we just love growing the community and we love to see kind of what their experiences are and and what they're, um, you know, what they've been getting out of doing this medium in this industry, which is still pretty new. So thanks for joining us, Julie. We really appreciate it today. And I want to talk about Sage. I want to talk about the podcast, but primarily we want to talk about you. And so with these Career Pathways episodes, we don't like to waste any time. We want to get right into it. So please, Julie, tell us. (laughs) Who are you? What's your story? Start from the beginning or wherever you want to start.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you again for having me. I mean, where do I start? There's a million places I could start, uh, but I do always like to talk about my pathway because it is a unique pathway. And I've said this before. I didn't, you know, I'm right now, you know, a founder and kind of director of a new initiative called Sage, which you mentioned. And I have been working in the sustainable or responsible seafood movement for years, and I didn't come to this position in a traditional pathway and I've mentioned before I'm not a diver, I don't know how to dive. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not a marine scientist or a conservationist by by training um, but I did fishermen. Yeah, I'm not an eighth generation fisherman. (laughs) I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Of course, we have our fantastic rivers, and our close proximity to the ocean, and our fantastic nature. But I I never thought I would be in this position uh, today. And it's been great, because that's what we need in this movement is uh, diversity of thought and diversity of experience. And so Um, I've been able to really make a fine career out of this (laughs) industry, and I'm really, really super happy to be here. So how did I get here? Um, Really, you know, back in high school, I could say, I started a real fascination with the Russian language. And it was in the time when um, the Soviet Union – I'm going to age myself, but that's okay, because I've already publicly stated how old I am. (laughs) Um, The Soviet Union was falling, and uh, Gorbachev was the – Last premiere of the Soviet Union, and I thought, you know, this is so cool, and I just became fascinated with the Russian language and literature and film, and so I started taking Russian, and uh, at the same time, I was working in restaurants around Portland, and you know, trying to just get spending money for school, and I continued that through college, um, also, you know, working in restaurants, and and Russian language was my major in my as my undergrad. So at the restaurant I was working at at the time, there was a gal and a guy, um, a gal that worked there, and she and her partner started a fly fishing lodge in the Russian Arctic. And so this was in like 91, maybe. Um, And so it was just after the kind of the curtain fell and fly fishing was just... Unheard of in Russia. Um, They don't have anything, they didn't have at the time anything like that. They thought, why on earth would you catch and release a fish? Um, It doesn't make any sense. However, this area where we were, which is above the Arctic Circle on the western side of Russia, was really uh, pristine. And because it was behind the Iron Curtain, there's there was no infrastructure there. There were no There were local villages, yes, but there was no roads or ways to get out there other than by helicopter. And so Uh this, yeah, the the rivers there are prolific with wild Atlantic salmon. And so this gal that I knew at this restaurant, she started, uh, she opened, well, she was part of a team that opened a fly fishing lodge in this area called the Kola Peninsula on a river called the Pinoy, which had... Just the incredible runs of wild Atlantic salmon, which no longer exists pretty much anywhere in the world. And so it became this real uh, holy grail, I guess, for fly fishermen. And so people would pay a lot of money to come out there and live in these pretty primitive, at the beginning, tents <laughs> that we put up Um they had furniture in them, but it was very, you know, very rudimentary. We didn't have, we did have running water. Eventually we did have some sort of toilets eventually, but at the very beginning it was very rough. And so, but people would come for the love of fishing. And so I ended up there because of my love of Russian and my love of working in restaurants and cooking and eating. <laughs> really. So, uh, and then I have, the, that. The, I have a love of that too. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually my, my career path to get to where I am now. It's very circuitous, but it did get me here. And like I mentioned, this fishing lodge with these incredible wild salmon, Atlantic salmon, they're very special because unlike Pacific salmon um, who spawn and then die, Atlantic salmon spawn repeatedly. So, you know, there's a very, um, a lot of interest uh, from the science community, the scientific community and the academic community to research these fish. And so we started a, a conservation program. And so we had a science team um, from McGill University and then the local Russian university come out every year. And so that's really how I think, foundationally, I became more aware uh, of a conservation side of things and started to work more on um, kind of the conservation of salmon um, and ended up, I'll stop there, It's so
1: interesting. I think that a lot of the people that we've interviewed for Career Pathways episodes, a lot of times people's interest in seafood is a result of traveling to a really pristine, beautiful place (laughs) and then somehow getting involved in the seafood industry. Like Brian Perkins had somewhat of a similar experience in Iceland and then Denise Gershon in Africa. It's just so funny that that seems to be a common thread in people's stories. I was going
0: to say, I'm wondering how long it's going to be until we get someone on a Career Pathways episode that was like, I knew that I wanted to be in seafood. <laughs> Every single person we talked to is like, I really had no intention of being involved in seafood. And then they somehow found their way in the industry. And then it it, it locks you in and you, you can't leave, you know. It's, it's, it's,
2: it's funny, funny that you say that, Sean, because that's exactly why Sage, that's one of the driving factors behind Sage is mm-hmm. really creating awareness for women specifically, but people in general, uh, people of all genders, that the seafood industry is an incredible industry, and it is actually a great career, and it's a great opportunity for people. Um, sure, there are problems. Every industry has problems, but I think a lot of people don't even realize, women specifically, don't even realize that this is a, a career choice, the seafood industry. And so that's one of the things that you know Sage wants to bring to to light for people.
0: Yeah. So... I want we want to get into sage but um <laughs> I want to get back to your story. I want I want to hear all the way through.
2: Sure. So I spent 13 seasons in the Russian Arctic <laughs> working
0: Oh my gosh. The, yeah, burst. on
2: the Panoy River. So I worked there actually uh 13 years. So I was full-time full-time employed uh, by the company, but I was only in in the Russian Arctic during uh the season, well, pre-season and post-season. So I would be there from I guess, April till uh, October, and then I would come back to Portland. Um, and we, you know, there's a lot of prep, like I said, you have to helicopter everything in, there are no roads. Um, so we would have to really prepare in advance to feed, you know, 20 guests a week for 20 weeks, and then 30 plus oh staff. So thinking, you know, people that you have to feed, and by the way, it's like a five class or a five star hotel. And so the food has to be incredible because these people, as I mentioned, are paying um, really a lot of money to have oh, the ultimate- They paid to take a
0: helicopter in.
2: <laughs> they pay to take, yeah, that was a huge expense. Of course, that was part of it. Um, you can imagine it's not cheap. And then you wow. have to helicopter in everything from toilet paper to uh, nails to people, right? And so wow. uh, I was there for a really long time. In fact, I had my first, I have two children and I had my first child with me for half the time. So uh, which was incredible. Uh, I wasn't actually when I did have my first daughter, I didn't actually live in the lodge. At that point, I stayed in the, uh, the city, which was the hub of where the guests would fly into and then fly, you know, fly into from Europe, and then fly on helicopter to the lodge. So I stayed in the city and worked in the office and making sure that, you know, everything was available and ready and if there were emergencies and what we you know helping people just get in and out of the the country because it's still I mean it wasn't easy at the time and you know everyone had to have a visa and there were visa issues but I did I do make a joke that my kids absolutely hate so I have two kids and their birthdays are, one's born in March and the other is born in November. And there's seven years difference between them. Oh, wow. And that's simply because of the life cycle of the Atlantic salmon. <laughs> because they, <laughs> I couldn't have a child when the fish were running during the summer and it's the so lodge funny. was open. And so I was very fortunate that I was able to family plan around oh, the goodness. the fishing lodge. However... There is a big gap in there in between them, but it's okay. We we laugh about it now.
1: My brother and I are seven years apart. So oh actually, wow, I have I like that each gap personally.
2: Do you? I
0: can't I can't imagine.
1: <laughs> it's worked out well for us.
2: <laughs> it's okay. My sister's okay.
0: two years older than me, and my three girls are less than two years apart each of them.
2: Wow, yeah, definitely
1: not seven. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: that's crazy. I can't I can't imagine that. That would be difficult.
1: <laughs> it's actually kind of nice because then you kind of get to grow up like you each have your childhoods and the other one, you're not competing with them, really. Mm-hmm. Like my sister, that's who we're four years apart, we were so competitive growing up. But like my brother and I, we never huh. felt competitive at all. Just different life
2: stages. Interesting. Yeah. On the other hand, I have a friend who has triplet girls, nope. which you can imagine is a different set of challenges.
1: Whoa. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I have three girls different ages. I can't imagine if they were all in the same like if they were if all three of my girls were in the, the two year old, two and a half year old stage at the same time, I would not have any hair. I would have ripped it all out at this point.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge for sure. sure. I think So
1: what was the biggest learning experience for you working in this super remote area? I feel like that's just such an uncommon thing.
2: Yeah. I can't honestly pinpoint one thing. It was very remote and it was very intense because there was a lot of, I don't want to say political unrest, but it was a time of great change in Russia, of course, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And then I was there during when Boris Yeltsin was president. And then when there was, I think, another president and then Vladimir Putin came in. And so it was challenging trying to operate a business in an emerging capitalist country, I think, mm. um, because, you know, they had been working under one paradigm there for so long, and to suddenly flip the switch to now everyone's going to be a businessman and be a capitalist, and and then we come in, you know, wanting to really provide a, a, a top-notch guest experience, it was very, it was difficult because, I mean, as a, a good example is one time we had the governor of the region decided to take our helicopter and come out to the lodge with a bunch of his guests instead of our guests who are coming in, you know, after paying a lot of money for this experience. And so what did we do with them? I mean, we had to entertain them in the city and it was a disaster. And it was, Mm. uh, there was a lot of like on the fly, you know, trying to please people, but also trying to, you have to please the governor. So you can't say no to the governor. But then on the other hand, you have all these people that are, Like you know, your guests, and you have to please them too. There was a lot of lessons. I mean, it was very challenging, and I was in my twenties at the time, so I was able to roll with the punches. I think right now, I would absolutely not even tolerate one bit of anything that I tolerated back then. I can guarantee you that. And that comes, you know, what is it? Wisdom comes with age. Uh, So I think I've earned a lot of wisdom over those years. Um, (laughs) But I, you know, like I said, I was there for thirteen years, and it was the experience was invaluable. The traveling, and I'm still friends with many of those people to the day, this day that I worked with very closely. And then I you can know,
1: imagine you would get really close with those people if you said yeah. like it's only 30 people yeah, that you're with to. for six months.
2: Yeah. Well, it was um, it was like five and a half. I was there in the city on those buffering on those ends, but yeah, it was a lot of it. We reckoned it like you're on a ship. You know, yeah. you're, you're not technically on a ship, but you're really on it a ship like that it. you can't get off.
0: There's that isolation factor. Yeah. Right. I, yeah I'm so cute like I feel like with most countries around the world I can like create an image in my mind of like what it's like and what it would be like to live there but just to me Russia is just such a mystery I, I yeah. honestly like I know nothing about Russia and when I look at it on a map I'm like this is just to me it just looks like half the world is just vast wilderness I don't yeah. know anything about like what, what is it like in Russia <laughs> just in general
2: yeah, it's it's uh, it's an enigma. The country is incredible. I haven't been to Russia. I think it's been probably 7 years now. Um so it of course it's changed, but in my experience, it is vast. It's the last time I checked it was there were 11 time zones. This and is, oh you God. can only imagine. It, I I mean it's huge. And so the pristine nature, the 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 fantastic people The diversity, you never think that there's such a diverse, that it's a diverse country. Um, There's people from all different kinds of ethnicities and local, like indigenous peoples. Um, The same here. You know, it's very, very, very uh, diverse. And uh, it's a really, really interesting country. And that's why it's been studied probably forever. And it probably will be forever. And I you know there's a russian saying and i honestly don't remember who wrote it oh i would i i do remember but i can't remember his last name actually right now but he says you can't understand russia with your mind mm. and so that begs the question Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah, that's like exactly (laughs) what you were just saying. (laughs) Yeah. So you should feel okay. Because that's exactly, it's designed, (laughs) (laughs) it's by design, (laughs) design, um, but it makes you wonder by what then can you understand Russia if you can't understand it with your mind or with your reasoning or rational thought. Hmm. Um, And I think it's more, I think to me, the answer is with your uh, kind of your emotions and your soul. Uh, it sounds a little corny, but it's really true. I think we, because when you're there, it's 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 a kind of almost a spiritual experience, especially when you're in the Arctic tundra. And you know, here's an example of what you asked for: like, what's it like? So honestly, I was one of I can't remember what year it was, but um, out of nowhere, I'm, and I'm not exaggerating. We are two and a half hours by helicopter from the nearest big city, and about thirty kilometers by boat from a very small village with probably 100, maybe 100 people on a, in a summer. Wow. And all of a sudden, like I'm walking down the road, there's this little road and I'm walking down the road and all of a sudden like 20 guys come out of the bushes covered in like soot and and ash and like they all had like kind of uniforms on. I'm like, what is happening here? Who are you guys? And it turns out they were these firefighters that were just dropped off in the middle of the tundra and somehow made, made their, they fought a fire somewhere and they made their way to the camp. And they're like, can you help us? Like, because we had, a, of course, radios for air traffic. And I was like, yeah, of course we can help you. But I don't know where we're going to put you. What? Because space, yeah, it was crazy. I was like, if there was stuff like that happening all the time. Like random oh, people God. would show up.
0: That's a fantastic scene in a movie.
2: Yeah. I mean, covered in like black soot and ash it was crazy one time i want to say this might be before my time even but i i remember it went into history histo- historic lore um this kind of very adventurous lithuanian guy got a couple of inner tubes and lashed them together and just started to float down the river from i don't know where up river way up river had you know headwaters and just like floated down it's <laughs> like passing what? by waving and everyone's like, what? You don't see that every day. You no. Literally you literally can go don't. for days and days and months without seeing another person. Oh, my god! That's why it becomes
0: yeah. such a unique experience when you do run into people. That's so
2: funny. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's so funny. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. So I was there for 13 years. And then they, you know, I mentioned in Russia, they didn't have a, uh, fly fishing is a very kind of cultural experience, especially for wealthy Brits, you know, um, People in England are very into the culture and the, and, the, and the kind of adventure of fly fishing and Americans too. So actually the, the, the guests that we had there were probably 50-50 from the UK and 50 from America. And, but over time, Russians started to understand, again, the value of catch and release and why these fish are more valuable for the tourism dollars that they generate for the community and for the city and for the for the for the region, than if we just take them out of the water and you know eat them. So,
0: is there a, a lot of seafood in Russia? Like, is is yes. seafood big in Russia? Yes, yes.
2: yes. And it, fact, we,
0: we are actually planning on doing a country. You know, we do species spotlights, but we're planning on doing a country spotlight on Russia with one of our new colleagues here at GSA who is in Russia. Yes, yes. yep. Julie, yes.
1: Julie knows him. But yeah. um,
0: but we're. Uh, we haven't done that yet. So I don't, I have no idea what the seafood industry is like in Russia. Oh, Just yeah. More well, mystery for me.
2: <laughs> yeah. And and that's what I was uh, getting at is that, you know, people started to really get into like fly fishing and catch and release and fishing. And then uh, a Russian uh, guy who was quite wealthy, he invested in, he he basically bought the company. And so at that point, I was the lone American that was there working for the company and they're like, you know, this is a Russian thing now. And I'm like, that's fine. Totally great. So after <laughs> 13. 13- Makes me yeah. feel great. Thanks. Thanks a Only lot. I've been
0: here for 13 years. Whatever. Yeah,
2: it's totally fine. No, it, it was actually time for me to go. And so I came back to Portland and I started to work at this great conservation organization here called the Wild Salmon Center. And so the Wild Salmon Center is focused on the uh, kind of protecting and conserving the last best great places where wild Pacific salmon are. So you think about Alaska, you think about the Russian Far East, which is on the completely opposite side of the country, on the Mm -hmm. Pacific. And so that's where they have huge prolific runs of Pacific salmon. And so I was working then, starting there in the sustainable fisheries team, working on Pacific salmon with Russian commercial fishermen and getting them into improvement initiative, well, certification at first, but then improvement initiatives like FIPS when they, when FIPS started to be a thing. So Constantine, when you have him on, um, he and I worked pretty closely on a lot of things in the Russian Far East, and they have, you know, in Kamchatka, which is uh, a very famous peninsula. Um, you know, pretty much if you're looking for the globe, it's opposite Alaska. It's like okay. where Sarah Palin <laughs> said she could see, probably, <laughs> right. Like Alaska or Russia when she said that. So Hilarious, they have the second the largest sockeye. Population after Alaska, after Bristol Bay in the world, and so they're a huge player in global seafood production. Um, They're the largest, probably. Don't quote me on that, but they're one of the largest pollock producers in the world. Oh wow! Also in the mix with Alaska, so that's on the kind of on the west side. But they also have, of course, a well-known tradition of uh, caviar. Right, when we think of caviar, we think of black caviar from the. Astrakhan which is I don't even know that's like in the Central Asia part of Russia and so there's there, so and then there's the when you think about the Baltic Sea there's the all those fish that are there mackerel that kind of stuff so yeah it's huge huge diversity inland fisheries kind of pike perch all those mm-hmm. things so there's a lot of fish and a lot of does, fish coming out of does Russia does
0: most of the fish from Russia stay within Russia or do they kind of export no. all over the world yeah
2: They export all over the world and uh, they export a lot of uh, fish to the US. And so that was what I was doing was working at the Wild Salmon Center, working with US buyers who were scrambling to find certified salmon to meet certain retailers' global commitments to buying only certified fish. And so Mm,
1: I imagine that that was probably like when those commitments were first coming up. In, the 2000s. Yeah, in 2008. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was
2: like, like, a, so a good example, Walmart made a commitment to buy only certified MSC certified seafood by 2012. So that was five. There were five years with that, There was a five year window to get as much fish certified as possible to satisfy Walmart's giant s- supply needs. Right. They have huge demand, supply right? needs. Yeah. Demand. Thank you.
0: And,
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm learning
0: so much today. I'm so excited. Yeah, and so, <laughs> nice. so
2: you know, Alaska, all of Alaska was already certified. Where's mm. the next hot thing that we need to get certified so we can help kind of augment Alaska's supply? And so that was Russia. And so that's what I was working on with, um, you know, these Russian salmon uh, commercial fishermen to make sure that they were access- they were able to access markets that cared about, what they were doing in terms of sustainability. Um, there's a lot of issues in Russia, but there's a lot of issues everywhere. And so we were you know, just making sure to connect uh, you know, the markets to the fishermen that were actually trying to do the good work and, and support their fishery and their communities at the same time. So yeah, there's a lot of Russian seafood. Even if you go to grocery outlet, which I don't know if you guys have grocery outlet over where you are, but it's like a discount yeah. supermarket and it's great. Um, oh, and they have them oh, all over here. I wish we had. <laughs> But you could totally get so expensive right now. Yeah, I know. I don't. I haven't been there in a long time, so they probably raise their prices as well. But they have Russian salmon all the time, and it's like under a variety of brands that we're very familiar with. Very familiar.
0: Mm. Very cool. Very cool. So, so uh, from there, what? Where did you go?
2: So I was at the Wild Salmon Center uh, working on again with uh, Russian salmon. I was working mostly with pink salmon on Sakhalin Island, which is an island. It's the So if you imagine where Japan is, and then there's uh, the northernmost island of Japan, which is Hokkaido, and then there's this big island above Hokkaido, which is Sakhalin Island, and that's part of Russia. Um, I think all those islands are called the Kuril Islands, and they're all contested between Japan and Russia. So uh, Sakhalin is in Russian control, and the rest is uh, clearly Japan. You know, Japan has its own islands. So um, I was there for uh, six years. Uh, again, working, like I said, with, uh, you know, Russian fisheries, but my work was mostly focused on Sakhalin uh, Island pink and chum salmon. And then we also had a program in Kamchatka focusing on the Sakai salmon, which was a great success. And then um, eventually, uh, we, you know, working at the Wild Salmon Center, which again, as I mentioned, they were really focused on the best places. And we were working with a lot of fisheries that had a lot of issues. So they couldn't be characterized as the best places, and in fact, we had a program in Japan, and believe it or not, Japan has wild salmon, but they're actually ninety-eight percent of them are come from hatcheries, in terms of the Hokkaido chunk. Oh,
0: okay, yeah. Makes
2: and so, sense. it's not the best last wild place, but we're working with them anyway to just to, to support the actual last wild salmon that are still there. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of internal kind of. I don't want to say mission drift, but it was, you know, we're working with these fisheries that are really challenging. Whereas Wild Salmon Center wants to, is working, you know, their mission is definitely to preserve, you know, Alaska and working with um, fisheries in Russia that are very healthy and pristine and making, to, making sure to keep them that way. While our team was working again with these fisheries that had a lot of challenges. And then also around that time, six years later, whatever that was uh, around, I think it's 2012, Fishery improvement projects started to kind of pop up, right? I think I mean they started a little bit earlier, but there was a lot of new newness around fishery improvement projects. And so we were operating some fishery improvement projects, FIPS, in Russia, and we wanted to expand that model that we were doing into other places besides salmon, in other places besides the North Pacific. And it was really hard to do that when you're working at a place called the Wild Salmon Center. So we decided mm-hmm. to we took our team so the sustainable fisheries team and then some people from what's called the scientific arm of the Wild Salmon Center and we opened a new NGO called Ocean Outcomes. I don't know if you're familiar with Ocean Outcomes, but they're also well they're virtual now but they're based in they were based in Portland at the time. And so they're definitely an organization that works to kind of improve fisheries globally. They do a lot of work on tuna, they do a lot of work on the economics of fishery improvement projects, which is also something that's been really under kind of studied. Um, And so they're doing a lot of work on that. So I was there for about two years with Ocean Outcomes. And then ultimately, I had a real um, issue, personally, with the fact that social responsibility wasn't being addressed um, as holistically as I felt it needed to be. And that stemmed from several just of my own observations when I was out in the field, and also at around 2014, when those Guardian articles came out, or, or the AP articles came out around uh, forced labor and child labor in Thai shrimp supply chains, and yeah. people were like, oh my God, what's happening? Like, we we should start thinking about the people. Right. And of course, you know, everybody mm-hmm. said they thought about people, and, and but, but were we really thinking about people? And to me, that was a huge question. And so at that time, a little reevaluation, and I was able to become the seafood director at Fair Trade USA, which, uh, as I don't know if you know, but anyway, Fair, at the time, Fair Trade USA had just launched what's called a capture fishery standard to work. Um, it's, a, it's a certification and working with small scale fisheries, um, fishers, focusing on kind of what I call the holistic approach to impact, which is, you know, working on the economic, social and environmental um, health of a fishery. Mm-hmm. And so I was there for, you know, four years and
1: That's something we always like to talk about on the show is sustainability is so much more than just environmental impact. Mm. And that's a perfect example.
0: Yeah, we've kind of shifted from using the word sustainable to using the word responsible more in replace of that just because it kind of has more of a, like you said, a holistic kind of connotation around it. When you use the word responsible, then it's evoking thoughts of like all these different ways that you need to be responsible as opposed to sustainability does drive the mind towards mostly environmental aspects. So. Yeah. Um, our listeners may have noticed that you know we talked mm-hmm. we used to use the word sustainability and sustainability a lot on the, the podcast and in the last year or so I think we've been transitioning to responsible seafood a whole lot more for that yeah. reason for that exactly totally reason.
2: I think you're absolutely right and I think and that's not a trend I think I mean it, it well it's a trend that everyone is is moving towards yeah. um, I've noticed it also uh, in other you know discussions I totally agree and that's actually part of another reason why SAGE, I think, is so important, uh, because mm-hmm. I do really want gender equality to be included into the definition of what is sustainable or what is responsible, because mm-hmm. it's currently not. And um, we're barely grappling with um, kind of the more egregious human rights issues like, again, slave, you know, forced labor, child labor, um, ethical recruitment is one that we we kind of think about a lot when we think of social responsibility. But to me, gender equality is just as important. And that's why I'm here to spur the next evolution of the movement. There we so go. that
1: kind of is a perfect segue because we talked about your time at Fair Trade. And yeah. then Sean and I know what comes right after that. But do you want to tell the listeners?
2: Uh, yeah. So what happened was um in of course the global pandemic hit and uh we were all on lockdown. And um in I think it was May 2020 so uh fair trade uh decided you know after careful review of their budgets and and no one actually knew what was happening. of course, no one knew not just at fair trade but they um decided to let go uh kind of twenty twenty three people uh cohort um of people, and so I was one of them um which what, actually What percentage
0: of that roughly do you think that was of it was all like tw- the twenty
2: to twenty five percent of people of the of the That's staff. A lot of people so it was a lot of people, and it spanned a big chunk. Yeah, it spanned programs and teams. It spanned uh from very junior, you know, level um staff to very senior level C-suite positions. So it was a big deal. And yeah. you know, I carefully thought about how I want to continue to to be in this space. I love the seafood industry, I love this job, I I've been here a long time, I have a lot of institutional knowledge. How can I continue to provide value? Uh, in the to the to the industry to the fisheries to the fish farms but also do something that I want to do finally right because I want to do what I want to do finally and I'm not going to do anything I don't want to do <laughs> I made the decision <laughs> I
0: think that, and, and you know I, I don't think that is unique um, no I I think during that time a lot of people did a lot of soul searching and, and made those decisions yeah to uh, you know this is my chance to do what I want to do and do it well and I think it's in a way the pandemic was like a a good wake up call for a lot of people.
2: Exactly. Um, Exactly. Right. And it, I, you know, as much as I hate to give credit to the pandemic, you know, because it's so (laughs) terrible, it it's absolutely true. If the pandemic hadn't have happened, I wouldn't, I, I honestly don't know if I would have been in this position. And so I did again, did a lot of soul searching. And when I was at fair trade, I was thinking about, so we were gearing up for, uh, standard revision, a major standard revision, which as you know, is the time, you know, it's every five years, you can take the opportunity to make changes to your standard. You can't just up and make a change. It has to be very, it's a procedure. It has to Mm -hmm. be public and all this stuff. There's a lot of requirements around making changes to a standard. So we were gearing up for that. And I wanted to, I was thinking about how to add some more gender equality and women's empowerment pieces in there. And unfortunately I didn't get to see that through but I thought, you know, maybe this is my opportunity to do something like that. And again, you know, spur the the movement to start to think about more, you know, 50% of the workforce is involved in, is women, and we're involved in, in every aspect of seafood production, but we're not in leadership, um, very lacking in leadership, lacking in discussions and, and decisions around fisheries management. And so how can I you know, support uplifting and amplifying women's voices. And so that's kind of the impetus around how SAGE started in my mind. And then I've said this before also, I kind of set out (laughs) – some signs to the universe. I was like, universe, give me some signs because I was scared, right? Really scared. And I didn't know what to do. Actually, half the time, I still don't know what I'm doing half the time, but that's okay. I'm managing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a huge jump to just like take the plunge and decide to do it.
2: Huge jump. And again, it was really scary. And I did get some signs back from the universe, very positive ones. And of course, I was consulting with my friends and my colleagues and my peers and uh, everyone's like, yeah, go for it. Just go for it. And and we'll figure it out later. And so, <laughs> I mean, that I, I wasn't going to figure out later. I just, I, I actually sat down and figured it out. And so to point,
0: that's what you got to do though, right? You right. got to say, I don't, there's unknowns, but they will be known somehow one way or another, but <laughs> exactly. we'll never find out unless we do it.
2: Exactly.
1: So Julie, when we were talking, I think it was last week, one thing that you said that really stood out to me that has stuck with me is that your kind of trajectory through the seafood industry has been parallel to the big issue of the moment it's kind of like <laughs> you and it just it seems like it just so happened to naturally be that way for you so like the major issue used to be environmental impact and sustainability there and that's kind of where you started your career and then now it's pivoting a lot more into social responsibility and that's the space that you're entering and i just think that it's so interesting how as you've grown and as the industry has grown, you've both ended up in this space of prioritizing people within the industry and figuring out how we can support them better.
2: Yeah, I did. I did say that. And it's really interesting because, again, like I said, the the movement, you know, 20 years ago, plus years ago, started out really environmentally focused and really um, did a lot to to drive environmental performance. And improve environmental performance in fisheries and fish farms. And again, I mentioned those articles that came out uh, around uh, forced labor, and that really spurred kind of the next, you know, evolution to to think about social responsibility. But as I mentioned, like thus far, we've really been thinking about these egregious human rights uh, violations. And there's so much more to it than that, right? And so again, and you know, and I was at Fair Trade focused on a lot of the social stuff, and now this is I'm moving evolving personally and professionally, hopefully also the movement will, to think about gender equality and livelihoods and uh, food and nutrition security, which I think we are. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about um, blue aquatic foods. And so what's that all about? Like, that's new. We never talked about that before. And it's thinking about uh, what we're harvesting from the sea as actually food and not just a resource, right, Right. to be exploited. Mm. So um, I think... Yeah, absolutely, and that's and that is absolutely one of the reasons why Sage um, exists today is to get us to think about not only people because that's very important, but as we've seen is that when we're thinking about people, not every person is at the table, and so it's making sure that we we think you know there's a lot of women in this fishery. Where are they at, and why aren't they there? And by the way. We didn't even know there were a lot of women in this fishery because the guys that we're working with in this fishery don't consider them to be part of the fishery, even though they are absolutely part of the fishery. Mm. And by that, I mean, women are not counted. So I've said this before, you can't account for what you don't count. So Mm. a really good example is, you know, women tend to, in a fishery, they tend to fish or glean clams along the shore or they fish near shore so they can be closer to their homes because they need to perform household work, which by the way is also unpaid labor so um, that's a different topic for mm-hmm. Side that's right now but not for right now so but so we we you know any kind of management decisions that happen around that fishery very uh, likely are not taking into account that women are there and they're absolutely part of that fishery but they're also the first ones to be, affected by any adverse changes through climate change or changes in fishery management or, uh, natural disasters or, you know, whatever, you name it, women are the ones that are literally on the front lines. COVID. I mean, that's a really good example of things that, uh, that kind of really show in the inequalities and how, um, women uh, kind of absorb a lot of the brunt of, again, these things that happen, um, that we don't expect.
1: So what is, I mean, I think we've kind of beaten around the bush, but I'd love to just get a (laughs) succinct, like, what is the mission of SAGE and what are the main projects or avenues that you're focusing on to accomplish your mission?
2: Sure. So let's quit beating around the bush, shall we? (laughs) Let's get right into it. I just want to
0: remind our listeners again that SAGE stands for Seafood and Gender Equality.
2: Correct. Yes. Thank you. So as you know, seafood supply chains are very long and it starts from the fishery or the fish farm and ends at the retailer, actually ending at the consumer's plate. And so when thinking about where should I focus my energy, I'm only one person still to this day, only one person. I do not have a staff. I do not have team. Unfortunately, I'm working very hard to (laughs) remedy that situation, but these things take time. Mm -hmm. So where should I focus my energy? And my energy right now is focused on the seafood industry in the U S specifically where the buying and selling and trade of seafood happens because we have a very acute lack of women in leadership at the, the, you know, at the highest levels. And again, I mentioned women do not see themselves in the industry because they do not see themselves at the leadership, you know, reflected in leadership. And so it's very well documented that if we have more women in leadership, that leads to more innovation and more, diverse and and innovative solutions, which is something that we need desperately right now because of the challenges that we've experienced specifically in COVID and that existed prior. And so, as we know, you know, 90% of the seafood industry, specifically the retailers, have sustainable sourcing commitments, and these sourcing commitments are advised on by the NGO community. And so, they have a lot of power and, and decisions are being made about the industry in real time, but there's a lack of diversity of voices in these decisions and in these discussions. And so, I really feel that if I can, not I. Okay, this is a team effort. Okay, so let's all get together. Mm-hmm. Focus. <laughs> We're behind you. If, Come
0: on, thank you. <laughs> Smiling, Everybody.
2: Everybody, focus. So, if we can get more. It, you know, innovation at the leadership level by including more women and being more inclusive to diverse voices, then that will positively affect everything that goes on down the chain. So SAGE is not here to work with women on the ground in fisheries globally. There are plenty of local organizations that have very strong gender-specific programs and protocols that can do the work on the ground. SAGE is here to work with the industry and uh, draw out, you know, the highlight the issues and educate us about how we can um, uh, solve these things. So you asked about the strategies. There's three. Um, one is about the education and awareness raising. So it's simply about um, educating the industry and people, you know, anyone really, whoever wants to listen, um, about uh, challenges that women face specifically in the industry, but also throughout the supply chain. So it's about this is the key kind of strategy around uplifting and amplifying these voices. So on my social media, for instance, you'll see a lot of people around or a lot of women that are fishing. So I mentioned I don't directly work with women who are fishing, but I'm absolutely going to uplift and amplify their 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 cause, their work, the great work that they do. Um, so that's that's one piece. The second piece is around uh, capacity building and capacity and community building. So really creating a network of women leaders uh, and, and women people, for that matter, can lead from any chair that they're in. It doesn't matter. They don't have to be at the top of, you know of whatever, you know, multi-billion dollar company. They they can lead from any chair. So creating a network um, and then the capacity of women to lead, right? And so that could be through potential mentorship opportunities, leadership opportunities, partnering with an organization that does leadership programs, um, scholarships, you name it. So this is really about capacity and career building and community building. And then the third strategy is what's called uh, gender mainstreaming or integration of gender positive policies into Um, activities that are meant to improve uh, global seafood production. So that could be working with certifications, or ratings, or FIP implementers, or the people that decide what is a FIP, what's a credible FIP. So how can we get some integration into policies and practices and legislation or whatever, you name it, everything that we can integrate gender into, let's do that. So that's that third piece. Um, And again, it's really right now, my focus is I think because it's just me and because of the skills and, the, and, and, the, and what, I, what I can bring to the table right now personally, it's about education and awareness raising because that's where my strength lies. Um, but soon, I'll be able to have a staff and a team that will help us you know, implement the other strategies more fully to their full capacity. Fantastic.
1: That is amazing. I feel like you have really thought all of this through so much. Like I love the three prong approach to each of those different categories because each of those are just as important as the other mm-hmm. one yeah. in this ongoing journey of seafood and gender equality yeah thank for you sure
0: i i know we're getting short on time and uh julie has already postponed another another call to keep speaking so i don't want to i don't want to keep you too long but no it's um, fine. i want to talk about the podcast
2: yes because yeah, i love please.
0: podcasts and i love other seafood podcasts Awesome! uh, I want to hear all about it.
2: Yeah, well, thank you again for having me on here, and um, definitely we'll do some cross-promoting. I am a new podcaster. We just launched the podcast last week with our uh, trailer, and then shortly after the inaugural episode. So the podcast is called The Conk, and it is uh, again, it's it's a means to, it's a platform to uplift and amplify women leaders, um, inspire new leaders inspire people to join the you know, seafood industry and understand that it's a viable career choice and really bring, um, kind of create enthusiasm around um, seafood because we need more women specifically, but we need just new and, and, and innovative voices to join this effort um, if we want to achieve kind of our collective goals around improving environmental and social responsibility. So this is the platform for that. Um, our inaugural episode uh, was... Uh, with uh, Julie Packard from the, the executive director of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, mm-hmm. who um, also launched the innovative Seafood Watch rating program. So seafood, um, many listeners probably are aware of the stoplight system, green, yellow, red, you know, good choice, best alternative or avoid kind of pocket guides that they issued for years. And so I wanted to really understand from Julie why they started that program, because I think it's it's such an innovation and also, you know, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has an incredible amount of amazing women leaders at their very top. And so I wanted to understand and delve into a little bit more about how potentially that the number of women in kind of executive positions there, how has that affected, the trage- how has that or, affected or not the trajectory of the aquarium? And as we know, you know, COVID has been a time Of really, really, really difficult time for everyone, and and the aquarium was no different. So I thought it was uh, interesting, you know, to bring her in as the first guest, and she graciously agreed because I was thrilled uh, to have her actually. And so I hope two Julies. It was a I called it between two Julies for a second. Between two Julies.
1: (laughs) Yes, I listened to the first episode the day that it came out, and I have to say it's so good. And Thank I'm you. so excited for future episodes. I think that you just already have a great I, I already have a good feel for like what the podcast is going to be about. And I'm really excited to see where it goes.
2: Thanks, Manny. I appreciate it. I worked really hard on it. And I do firmly believe that it's it's people are so interesting. And I love talking to people as you do, I'm sure to be also in this position. And everyone has been so supportive. And so I just I'm happy to just to be here. Honestly, I'm just happy to be here.
0: Well, we're excited to have you join the community and have you, you know, join our little group of seafood podcasters. <laughs> um, and we'll make sure that we share links in the show notes for your show. And, Absolutely.
1: Uh, Social media, and, website, all that yep, kind of stuff. And, and awesome. we'll,
0: we'll share some information about Sage as well. That's so great. Is, is there anything else? Maddie, do you have anything else? Or Julie, anything else that you want to share while you have this platform? I know you have your own platform now. Yeah, But while you I have do. our platform, what, what else would you like to say? No,
2: I just want to thank you for having me on here. And I want to thank your listeners for, um, you know, checking out the conch, if if at all possible. Uh, I, I'm really proud of it. And I again, I that's, you know, I always ask, obviously, I've only had one guest before. But one of the questions I intend to ask is like, why do you stay in this industry? And one of the questions that and how I would answer that question is that it's because of the people, honestly, um, everyone has been so supportive. I think this is a very unique Um, culture, the seafood industry, where we're very collaborative, and we can see that by the number of pre-collaborative, you know, collaborations that are working out there of the industry itself. And I think just everyone is really supportive and really great. And we want to see each other succeed. So that's why I stay in this industry. And so I hope that your listeners will appreciate that and um, know that that's the same thing about you is that you are supporting me. And I thank you for that.
1: I love that that's such a great note to end on
0: that is well julie thank you so much again for joining us and uh we'll talk to you soon
2: i'll see you later all right thanks
0: folks that was our conversation with julie kuchipatov i have so much trouble saying her name
1: i feel like at the end of this episode you should do just like a of up- <laughs> every time every, I every mess time up you name. messed
0: it up <laughs> maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe i'll do that if If you're feeling editing if you've listened this far then you you know listen a little bit longer they there may be a little treat at the end of this episode (laughs) where i just embarrass myself (laughs) um as always i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope you learned something i hope you check out the Conk podcast and subscribe and rate and review her show
1: and do the same for ours
0: do the same for ours subscribe to aquademia wherever you listen contact us through the contact form at globalseafood.org by clicking on the aquademia podcast link Find us on Twitter at AquademiaPod or email us, podcast at GlobalSeafood.org.
1: Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Ciao.
0: Someone had to say it. <laughs> Julie Kuchapatov, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. You got it. So we're sitting down today with Julie. <laughs> we're sitting down today with Julie Cuchipato. Kut,
2: kut- <laughs> you just said it per- you know just me. said it perfectly.
0: Kut, <laughs> there you go folks that was our conversation with julie kut- Kuch pot kuchipot- folks that was our conversation with julie kuchipot i have so much trouble saying her name I- <laughs>